This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... Convention GMing. Writing routines. Emily Care Boss. And Agent 355. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Rolier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relia's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us once more we have entered the friendly confines, the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. Although today, the gaming hut is not a shag-carpeted confine. It has got some sort of institutional carpet and is probably a big, echoey hotel function room or possibly a stadium function room, if you are so lucky, because today's question is about convention GMing, not necessarily GMing at home in the friendly confines of your very own gaming hut. This is a public gaming hut. Right. Well, I think it's about preparing in your gaming hut to go and play in the much bigger gaming dome. Or perhaps even moving your mental gaming hut into the gaming dome. We're getting ahead of the question, which is from Patreon backer Noel Warford, who asks, What advice do you, Ken and Robin, have for a first-time convention game master? And Robin, do you... I mean, when, how long ago was it that you were a first time convention game master? For me, it was, it was, I think it may have even been the Reagan administration. It, it, it's, it's a long time ago. It's, kids, look it up in your history books. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure when I first ran, I'm not sure I ever ran anything as a civilian, in part because only now is Toronto's tabletop role playing <laughs> con scene worthy of the name. Oh, did you have to like get your, your stuffed animals and area wildlife together and have a pretend gaming convention? Uh, the gaming convention uh, that sort of occupied that space uh, was very kind of old school and, and particularly it was actually run by a war gaming group that grudgingly allowed some role playing to occur in order to have enough people to have the event. And so, <laughs> so, so kids look up the Reagan administration in your, in your history books or just right. watch stranger things. It was a different time. <laughs> so I, I might well have done my first uh, convention runs as a pro in the nineties, but I don't think that the, uh, we're not yet at the point where it's about, you know, bring your virtual, uh, 
reality goggles and your um, uh, magic genetic alteration uh, uh, fans. Uh, I think we're still yeah. pretty much in the, the the same technology applies where you're still mm-hmm. uh, rolling actual dice and uh, uh, you're bringing character sheets and so forth. Uh, this is also an object lesson in how long it takes us to get to questions because we've got a large backlog of great questions from our wonderful Patreon backers. And uh, uh, Noel has already uh, run uh, games at conventions now because we saw him at Gen Con. He was exactly. one of the uh, crew of... Uh, Pelgrane GMs, and I'm sure that uh, he obviously got along perfectly well without us, but uh, we yes, can nonetheless... Yes, he in fact tweeted, that, I believe, that his first convention uh, game ran like a ticking clock. Right. Just shows the quality of listeners and backers we and have. And this comes to, to the first lesson, which is, um, you know, to steal a line from, from sneakers, uh, just do it. Mm-hmm. Jump in the deep end, and if you're uh, a halfway decent GM at home, you'll be just fine in a convention environment. And the main thing is to commit to it, be confident, and understand that uh, just as you are there to have fun, so are your players. And everything will kind of kick in. And uh, the first wave of people who started running con games, they didn't have a newfangled podcast to listen to for advice. So uh, a lot of the advice is basically kind of don't overthink it and be ready to have fun. And you're probably uh, nine-tenths of the way there. Are there any other sort of uh, overall bits of advice that we want to get to before we maybe drill in a, a little deeper to uh, uh, finer honed techniques? Depending on why you're there, I think you touched on that earlier. If you're there as sort of a person who just wants to run adventures at a game convention, and God bless you, that's one sort of attitude. And if you're running for a game company, that's kind of another sort of attitude. I ran games just on my own hook, and then I ran a bunch of demo games for Chaosium, back in the day. And the attitude when it's on your own hook is really liberating because it's, I'm going to take this thing that I can't do at my own table for whatever reason, probably because it involves everyone dying horribly. Um, and I'm going to run it and I'm going to run it for a bunch of strangers and worst case scenario, they'll never see me again. I'll never see them again. You can't quite have that same hail fellow well-met attitude. I think if you're officially representing a company, because you have to sort of assume that They'll come back around to the booth and yell if it's really terrible. But, you know, as you say, the good news is you're there to have fun. They're there to have fun. Uh, assuming anyone puts any effort into that goal, that goal will be met because it's a fun activity that you're engaging in. It's a role-playing game, for goodness sake. You're not, you know, doing heart surgery on someone you just met. You're playing Dungeons & Dragons or 13th Age or whatever, Knights, Black Agents, Call of Cthulhu. You're doing something you've already done, you know uh, and love to do in the first place. So... Get out and know it, love it, and do it. Uh, another uh, dictum that I would suggest is, and this is actually true of shorter demos as well, and, and demos for even for not for role-playing games, which is your ultimate goal is never to teach the game. Uh, some people do go to games in order to learn them, but they're already going to meet you halfway. But your real goal is to give everybody a great time and have them walk away from the table thinking that the game that you ran for them, uh, whether it's, you know, any game on that long list that you've just mentioned or whatever game is your favorite, is the awesomest game ever. So it's about excitement and uh, reward and not about, oh, well, here's how the uh, uh, build point system works. And uh, if, oh, we're going to get in cars, so let me take 20 minutes to explain the vehicle rules, Uh, which I guess also suggests that if you are designing 
your own adventure to run rather than being provided one as you would in an organized play situation or when you're running for a game company in exchange for a badge, uh, make sure that you're using the simplest subsystems of the game that you're running and or that you are familiar enough with the subsystems that they might as well be the simplest ones. So you could have a game where the cattle st stampede rules are actually very complicated, but you've run so many cattle stampedes for your home group that you know how to make them work. And, you know, your players show up every week going, can we have another cattle stampede? And you're like, we're playing cyberpunk. Why, why are you asking us this? I'm going to, I'm going to shoot off a bunch of guns near the cattle. What happens? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so look at the complexity of the rules that they'll be interacting with, and also look at the complexity of the crunchy bits on the character sheets you're handing out. Now, this is an issue that varies depending on the game, right? If you're running Pathfinder, there's a potential to have some quite complicated spells and stuff, and you might want to either make sure that you know all of the spells perfectly so that you can just explain how they work, or make sure that the super complicated stuff stays off of people's character sheets. I would suggest you want to do both because there's one thing that really kills momentum at the gaming table at a convention even more so than it does at home is oh let's look up the rule book you know as soon as somebody has to flip to the index and then to page 79 that's a problem so go through the adventure and the characters and make sure you never have to flip to page 79 yeah along with that i would say also um, and this should be true whether you're repping someone or just doing it for your own self, because either way, you do want to leave them with the feeling this was the best game ever. Uh, cut the scenario to emphasize the best parts of the game that you're playing. Every game's got a best part and a part that you sort of go through to get to the best part. In Call of Cthulhu, I ran a really good scenario that was super good and really tuned and had a lot of creeping dread and horror and investigation. And at the very, very end, there was a big overwhelming odds fight. And that was really good. And it got really good response. And I ran it and I ran it and I ran it. And I kept thinking, everyone's enjoying themselves. Everyone's liking it. Everyone's getting creeped out. But is this what Call of Cthulhu is, right? This could be any game. And so instead, the next time I started running, I ran a scenario where people start going crazy immediately because an evil idol is, is possessing people. Because that's what is sort of the high dollar special effect, uh, Margot Robbie hitting someone with a bat part of the game is the thing that you want to watch and then you suffer through the whole rest of the game or you don't if it's Call of Cthulhu, but with other games you suffer, uh, until you get to that really awesome bit. And so if there's a part of your game that is signature, or is really, really spectacular, or is the thing that everyone who's heard of the game knows is going to happen, make sure that is in the, the scenario that you're running, because the scenario's job is to act as kind of a teaser trailer for the experience of running the game at home, or having a campaign at home, or, or playing the game at home. And that teaser trailer, like a teaser trailer for a movie, needs to be arranged and edited and cut and put together such that all the shiniest best parts are right up in the player's uh, faces and that they see it happening and can feel it. And if you run the game and the cattle stampede rules, uh, are really, really the, the, the climax of the game, but you've said, nope, we're going to do a, a proper, um, uh, Yojimbo shootout because it, it always works at the table. That's great. 
And then at the end of the game, people say, isn't this the game with the really cool cattle stampedes? And you're like, yeah, but I didn't really think we needed to get to that. They may have had a great time, but if you involve a cattle stampede in your Yojimbo somehow, then you'll do a better job of selling the game. And assuming, as you say, you you know those rules and can lean on them, then you have a more signature experience that people will say, I played, you know, um, uh, Cowboys and Corsairs. How are the cattle stampedes? I don't know. We didn't really do a cattle stampede in that one. That's not what the conversation you want to have happen after the table. You want them to say, it was the most amazing cattle stampede I've ever been in. I can't wait to stampede cattle in all my other games and compare them or whatever. Right. Because when someone chooses to uh, play your convention uh, game and take up uh, that slot for what it is that you're doing, they generally want to play this game because they don't get a chance to otherwise. Um at a smaller convention, it may just be that there are only basically uh, D&D and then Call of Cthulhu and then maybe a couple of other uh, sort of story type games. It, it was once the fact, I'm not sure how true that is now, that just for a lot of people, if you want to have character interaction, you have to play Cthulhu. And if you want to have fighting, you want to you have to play D&D. So at a small con, you know, be aware of, uh, or a big con, be aware of what the likely expectations of your players are going in. And if you really, really, really want to do something that's a change of pace, you know, we're playing Call of Cthulhu tonight, but really it's mostly about aerial battles in World War One. heavily, heavily signal in your description that this is a big change of pace. It isn't a typical Call of Cthulhu game, but, you know, bill it as you know, World War One dogfights using modified Call of Cthulhu rules so that people uh, don't come expecting the normative experience and instead uh, get your peculiar variant. Another thing that I would advise is go through the scenario, uh, whether it is supplied to you or whether you have written it yourself, and look for possible choke points. And this sounds like an obvious thing to say, except I will often hear uh, about convention games that go off the rails immediately because the you know you need to make a roll in order to continue the adventure in the first ten minutes and then no one makes the roll and everybody's sitting there which seems absurd but it happens so you Cardis listeners don't really need this advice but perhaps this is about your sense of confidence that uh, unfortunately you may be competing with some GMs who aren't that great. So don't worry so much if you know that you're good. And But nonetheless, um, you know, maybe you've been supplied with a scenario that accidentally has choke points in it. So look for them and uh, look for ways to either cut them out completely and substitute a gumshoe style, yes, you succeed, or you succeed but with negative consequences rather than the story doesn't go forward. But make sure that there are, uh, that there are points where it could just stop and do nothing make sure those points uh, come out. As a corollary to that, uh, you might also want to uh, look at possible things where you go, I think the players might easily just go off in this direction. I have some thoughts of what to do if I have to improv wildly. Or, um, I, as I was going to say when you brought up the whole notion of, uh, of a standstill, is uh, follow the, uh, I think it was O. Henry's advice that you cut the first two pages of every story. Go to your scenario and see how close to medius rest you can begin it and begin it there. It's a con game. No one really cares how these pregens got into the burning Zeppelin. 
they're like, you know, they're there. They're on the Zeppelin. You don't want to give them a chance to say, take the fabulous Hindenburg, cross the Atlantic in luxury. And they're saying, I don't think I want to. I would rather sail on this lovely boat where nothing bad will happen. Make sure that they are on the Hindenburg and perhaps even they're, you know, they see Lakehurst, New Jersey coming in below them. And now the game begins. You just want to make sure that you don't give players because the players at a convention game most of them will play toward the guns and play toward the action but you do get people who say well at the table if i wander off and try and push things my gm will hit me but this new guy i i don't know what what they'll do and maybe i want to go in and and explore this other thing you want to sort of keep the story going because while that one player may have more fun trying to buy a steamship ticket no one else in the game is going to have any fun, including you. So move it as close as you can to the action without actually removing any part of the scenario that is fun or interesting or shows off an aspect of the game. Yeah, never underestimate the potential perversity of the oppositional player who's not necessarily consciously trying to undermine what you're doing, but may well be uh, just think of every game as a sandbox game when uh, sandbox games are great, but convention games need to be shaped. Right. Um, which brings us to the other, uh, or they're, or they're like a, like a, like a, like a, a cat or a hamster. They're put in a new cage. The first thing they do is they go smell all the limits of it. They have to figure out how far they can go. And that's a great instinct in a, in a, in a mammal, less good in a player. Well, just make sure there's a cage. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, make- normally we wouldn't, uh, a phrase, the adventure as, a, as being a cage. That sounds like we're stripping uh, players of choice. But within that cage, there's a paddle wheel and there's one of those uh, groovy toys that the uh, the hamster can play with. You've got all this stuff in the cage. Uh, make sure they stay in the cage. Yes. Delicious cedar chips. Who doesn't love a cedar chip? Exactly. I'm, I've run out of examples of things that are in a hamster cage. <laughs> yes. <but laughs> yes. It's not a, owning it's, a hamster cage. It's a rough cage. metaphor, people. You're right. Anyway, the larger point being, um, stock your gaming aquarium with plenty of plastic astronauts. Yes. The other thing that you obviously, I, this is sort of standard, but why not say standard things? We've been saying sort of standard things. Show up early, uh, show up rested to the extent you can. Be super patient. These people may be new to the game. They may be new to gaming. They may have only known about gaming through terrible, angry lectures in their, um, uh, in their church or, um, uh, Tumblr group. You need to go and be the good ambassador of the normal person who enjoys playing games. And that may mean putting a tamp down on your own charming acerbity because your goal here is to be a friend and help meet to the people at your table, not to be a uh, gatekeeper to the people at your table. Uh, everyone is welcome here in the hamster cage slash aquarium slash gaming hobby. Yeah. The main thing is show up. Um, yeah. uh, and that's uh, <laughs> much the, like Woody Allen's advice for life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's a complaint that uh, if you work a booth uh, that uh, at a company that is sponsoring games, you get every year is that every, every time some GMs flake, and uh, presumably, I guess they're I'm assuming they have good reasons like they're ill or, or what have you. But try and get contact info of someone you can text or email to uh, warn them that if you know you're going to flake or try and send somebody to the table to let them know that that's what's happened. Or, you know, try and contact the company so maybe they can find somebody to jump in and sub for that game because there's no greater disappointment than showing up for. Uh, a slot that you've marked out and bought a ticket for, and then boom, all of a sudden there's nobody there and you've got four hours to kill at a con that has a limited number of hours. So, Or that has got everyone has already signed up for all the games in that slot 
and yeah. now there's no open game that you want to play or there's no open gaming you can get to, or you've only got a limited amount of time before you have to get to lunch and do whatever you, you, you know, you, you have to, you know, by volunteering to run a game at a convention, you are in sort of the opposite. If you're running a game at home, you're in kind of a position of power because you're the GM and people bring the snacks and everyone is, is super cool. And they're all your buddies at a gaming convention. You're kind of the vendor of a product in a way. And if you aren't making the extra effort, then the gaming, the people who showed up will not just, you know, philosophically shrug it off like your buddies will if you uh, show up and sort of half-ass an adventure for them because everyone got to talk and, and share some snacks. This this is a different moment in the lives of the people around the table, and you have to sort of step up a little bit and treat it that way. It is a little more serious than running at home, but on the other hand, as I said earlier, it's more sort of liberating because you can do things you can't do at home. Right. Uh, while running, he says, knowing that this segment is running out of time, uh, one of the <laughs> things that you want to keep an eye on is the clock, uh, which probably these days is not a literal clock, but probably your phone, mm -hmm. and keep track of how much time has elapsed in the adventure and how much time the big climactic fun part is supposed to take up. Because, uh, again, you don't want to give the players so much freedom that they freely explore everywhere and then you've only got three minutes to have the big moment that everybody really wants to ultimately have. So uh, when you're prepping your adventure, check for the stuff that you can skip over if the players are running late and uh, leave in if they're proceeding super efficiently. And so uh, that can kind of, uh, and even just the process of thinking that will enable you to remember at the table that uh, you have a deadline much more so than you do at your table at home because if everybody goes off in a new, cool, awesome direction and gets to the climax only at the end of the session, well, you can have another session next week. But you can't do that at a, at a con event. So uh, be prepared uh, ahead of time. Look for your edit points and don't be afraid to use them if it looks like you're going to have to in order to fit in the, the final cattle stampede or whatever it is that feels like your game at the end. And I think that since we are uh, on the nose discussing timing and watching the clock we should thank everyone for coming out uh tell them to turn in their tickets to the booth and sneak off to our next event slash hut The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom 
or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope! Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. It's time, once again, for the classic segment, How to Write Good, in which we examine the uh, techniques of the writer or creator, or and in this case, we're looking at the external techniques, the uh, stuff that makes a writing day work, the really practical stuff, and that's because uh, Patreon backer Corey Pierno has the following question. Can you outline your daily schedule with regards to when you write and how you schedule your viewing slash reading for pleasure and research? The uh, writer, I think, is quite often very heavily bound to routine. I know that I am, that if my routine gets thrown off, it may be the case that I, not just that I don't get the number of words that I want to get written that day written, but I might wind up with zero words written that day, or close enough to zero. So partly this is all about kind of training your brain so that it will respond, hopefully most days, (laughs) to your... ideally to your request to turn on the creativity meters and, and let you write. Uh, so, Ken, uh, I know that your uh, workday is uh, unusually uh, split into two. So you want to give people a tour of a typical Ken Height workday. As you say, if your schedule is thrown off by going to a convention or having some sort of uh, other uh, crisis that will, in fact, throw off the whole day, it's not the sort of thing you can you know, show up halfway through and, uh, you know, just tighten half the widgets. It's a, right. it's a different process. There's and, a- and for the listeners at home, uh, Ken and I started our uh, discussion about how what a big hole Gen Con put in both of our uh, uh, productivity uh, schedules this week. So uh, those sorts of external uh, events, the things that can uh, make your brain tired, those have a, a big impact. Yeah. So anyway, um, and a good day for me or a day that, that gets work done uh, begins uh, when I get up in the morning, which for me is usually one in the afternoon, give or take. Uh, I spend the three or four hours from there to uh, when my wife gets home, answering email, dealing with uh, publishers and the rest of the waking world and doing all the sort of niggly piggly businessy part of a freelance writing career because you have to, you know, talk to people on, you know, all kinds of projects. You have to look in on other writers. If you're working with someone on a project, there's a lot of unavoidable dealing with other human beings, even in writing. And I find that if I do that when everyone's awake, 
that tends to make things work better. And the more to the point, that means that I can then spend my actual productive hours not doing that, which is the super key, super key. Anyway, when I'm done with that, ideally, if everything is really good and there's a paucity of that, I can sometimes get an hour or two of, of typing in. And often that typing turns into writing, but that's not something to count on. That's something to hope for. But then my wife will come home from work and I will happily abandon the keyboard and go downstairs and spend as much time as I possibly can with her. Uh, at some point, Virgil will have come up and interrupted the process two or three times because cats are basically furry pomodoros. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's that's a whole different. Now, <laughs> pot, does he I think. time it for every twenty minutes? That I would be unusually cooperative for it, a cat. Yes. Well, he times it, but I'm not sure it's to our Earth time or our human time. He times it for Virgil time. He which does is, it in cat pomodoros. Exactly, cat pomodoros. Yes, when Virgil feels like he's spent too long napping, it's time to go do something else. Um, yeah, I'm his Pomodoro, I guess is how this works. Anyhow, um, I will, uh, spend the evening with my wife. Sometimes that will be with the two of us doing something together. Sometimes that will be, she's watching something that she wants to watch and I'll be reading usually for pleasure or research, usually for research nowadays. And the goal is to make sure that your research is something you would read for pleasure in the first place. Uh, sometimes, uh, like with, um, with, with some projects, um, Sheila wants to watch the thing that I'm watching for pleasure or research. And that works out really well for research rather. And then when she goes to bed, there's usually a little more tail off of, of, of research, uh, reading or, uh, watching. And then that ends ideally at one in the morning. And then one in the morning, uh, I will have eaten my, you know, dinner to me, breakfast to people in Panape or wherever it is. My time works out. And I go upstairs, uh, full of input and food. And then over the next five hours, I turn that into word count. And the goal is to write basically from when I sit down at my desk, uh, at one in the morning until six in the morning or thereabouts when my wife wakes up and I go to bed. Because if I go to bed in the middle of the process, while it's, it's lovely, it doesn't actually get any work done. And, um, uh, it actually winds up waking her up and that causes at the very least it doesn't make her work day any happier the next day. So it's better if I write while she sleeps and then sleep while she works. And then the whole system sort of works around. Everyone obviously has their own uh, particular life rhythm, but that one seems to work for me when it works. And when it does work, it works really, really well. I, I try to keep more of a uh, nine to five or rather 10 to six uh, schedule in order to stay uh, synced with uh, my wife's uh, work hours so that... Because you're uh, decent people, Robin. <laughs> uh, well, not I'm not a putting a value boho. judgment on it, um, but I, I would find it very difficult to do what you do and rev up and rev down and rev up and rev down again. That what I'm really hoping for is a long stretch of time in which I can enter a flow state. Um, and so, uh, and that usually winds up being sort of from one till six. So that anything I any other schedule commitment that sort of starts to impinge on either end of that is real trouble because if I go too far past one, I don't have enough time to get my word count that day. Likewise, if I have to knock off early and um, your discussion of the sort of non-writing tasks that you have every day uh, is a real problem to uh, keep in mind because I uh, supposedly the thought that task switching and multitasking does not have as high a cognitive uh, cost as 
researchers used to think that they're now saying, oh, that's nothing. But it is for me. That the, it's the more- almost as though there's a large industry that really wants it to be true that it doesn't have a cognitive cost. Yeah, yeah. Huh, um, go a whole figure. bunch of large industries. Um, so that the, the number of different things that I have to think about in a day before I switch to writing, uh, if it's more than two or three things I have to think about in any given day, my writing productivity is probably shot. And no, uh, regardless of how much time it takes to do thing one and thing two, if there's a thing three and then there's writing, uh, I'm in trouble. And so I really try to... Uh, you know, when I get an email that requires action from me, my re- first response is always, oh, what's, what's and then, uh, you know, I will grudgingly try to find a moment to respond to it. And I'm trying to be better about uh, using like the, the new Google inbox app and staying at inbox zero and uh, making to do lists of things that I need to do so that I can postpone all those little tasks for moments when I have a, a chunk of time that can only be used for a little task. Like, for example, on a podcasting day, uh, sometimes I'll get 45 minutes to an hour that are not uh, podcast related in which I can, you know, knock off a bunch of those uh, little email errands or responses or uh, or sometimes I will have time at the end of the day or a little bit of time in the evening to deal with stuff. But those uh, having to answer questions and make decisions is uh something that uh, is challenging because it uses a, a chunk of your cognitive energy. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, someone tried to get a hold of me over something. And I just said, oh, well, I'm waiting for Tuesday, which is my responding to basic tasks day. And the response is, well, I wish I had a, only a single day when I, it's like, you're not a writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have a bunch of administrative tasks that you do all the time. Well, I, I need to uh, jealously guard uh, the writing space. Well, make a list of your wishes. That's my advice. Then set it on fire. Hmm? Right. I do have a word quota that I uh, need to reach each day before I feel that I can knock off early. Uh, Spoiler, I almost never get to knock off early. And it is a number that I increased when the value of the Canadian dollar rose against the U.S. dollar, which basically uh, otherwise would have sliced into my income pretty heavily. I have yet to return to the more leisurely number, even though the uh, exchange rate is back to where it used to be just because now the pressure is that I have a bunch of different clients and cool projects that I want to all accommodate and only so many weeks in the year. Uh, but it is an ambition to uh, ease back on that word count. We'll see if that ever <laughs> happens. Yeah. Well, um, raise your price, Robin. That's that's how to ease back on your word count is raise your price. Supply and demand. Well, but even so, <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling I could do that and there would still be... Uh, there would still be demands on my time, let's say. Well, no, I'm sure there would still be demands on your time, but at least they would be better recompensed. Right. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I, I can hear Kat uh, getting very nervous as, as you suggest that. <laughs> I don't think Kat is getting nervous. She's tap maybe tapping her fingernails on the table, but I don't think it's in nervousness. Mm. I think there are other emotions, stronger, deeper, older emotions boiling there. Not so much your human nerves. <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, to move on to the other uh, part of the question, uh, I... Don't spend writing days, weekdays, researching unless I can possibly avoid it. So I, if I, there's a project that I know needs doing that needs a lot of research, I will do that research in my personal time, uh, scare quotes, ahead of time so that by the time I'm actually officially commencing the writing of that project, that the research is basically done. Now, 
certainly you will run across things in the course of a writing day where it's like, oh, okay, I need to find out, you know, what the train cost in Paris in 1895. Uh, Unfortunately, we have the internet for that now. I don't know how anyone (laughs) ever did anything involving research. Uh, before Google. Um, well, but, James uh, Joyce had it, an army of research assistants. I know that. Oh, well, if only we had an army of research assistants. Uh, again, we would have to have a, a much bigger industry before we can have uh, interns of Ken and Robin. Yes. At any rate, um, and again, the secret to that, as you suggest, is never volunteer for a big project involving a lot of research unless you really want to research that stuff and you will enjoy reading a whole bunch of books on, you know, the Surrealists of Paris. Right. Uh, or, you know, if you will enjoy... The Vietnam re- War. <laughs> right. If, if you will enjoy rereading all of Vance science fiction uh, novels, that's great, uh, which I certainly did in preparation for The Guy in Reach. That was uh, uh, lovely. And the research that I've been doing, I've, I've picked for the, for the Yellow King RPG, I have uh, come across a couple of things that were more of a slog in terms of uh, 19th century literature. But even then, you know, I persevere and I don't do that during my uh, workday because uh, the economics of uh, game writing are such that you uh, you can't spend three years researching a book and then turn out a three to four hundred page book and that's your work for a three to four year period. That's that's not how it works. You got to squeeze it in. Yes, there are, there are a relative paucity of people who will commit to saying, "Yeah, you research for a year and then you write for a year and then we'll put the product out." That has happened in my experience once, and I suspect it will never happen again. Although it did win best product of the year, gold ending. Just saying. Just saying. Just and, saying. And that, that's the thing is that you know, time spent on research is uh, absent. One particular uh, example that we just uh, mentioned. Uh, you don't usually get paid for time researching. You get paid by the word. I recently talked to someone who said, in Europe, we do not care about paying by the word. We we pay by the gestalt. So I'm looking forward to examining <laughs> Getting that. Getting your first gestalt check. That, that, that business model. <laughs> that's um, a good one. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. And uh, as a freelancer, you may want to be careful. You know, if you're being called upon to write 6,000 words on weapons of uh, East Asia, and you know that you would have to do six to eight weeks of solid research in order to write that 6,000 words. Which uh, seems unlikely. Yeah. Uh, do the math on that. Yeah. Uh, because you don't get paid for research. Right. I think that we are now moving more into a uh, fundamental injustices of the writer's life as opposed to <laughs> the, the, how the to write good. That. And so perhaps we should uh, move into an ad for a product in which someone was paid to do the research. the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. 
And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Ryan Mannix. Ben Dilworth. Ryan Liebarger. Scott Herring. And Timothy Corum. Welcome to yet another edition of Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else, and this time we are talking to Emily Kerboss. Hello! Uh, welcome. So I thought uh, the main thing that we would like to uh, talk about, a topic on all of our minds, is bubble gumshoe, in which we all have a vested interest. Yes, uh, yes, some more vested than others. So uh, we've already done a uh, Among My Many Hats segment in which Ken described bubble gumshoe, but people who potentially want to acquire this game have... Some of them have forgotten what it's about. So, Emily, can you uh, encapsulate it and do a better job than Ken did? Oh, that's a high standard there. Um, It's basically our love letter to Veronica Mars, Nancy Drew, and and all the the wonderful teen sleuths that we grew up on uh, with a modernized spin. So, what was your uh, design role in doing Bubblegum Shoe and what brought you on board? I was wearing my Let's Do Relationships Good hat. Um, we wanted to make sure that the, the kids were really well embedded in their world and had strong relationships with other people in the community. And I've done a lot of work about that area in my other game design, so I, I guess that was why I was lucky enough to be picked. So you are mostly uh, famous for doing your own thing. We were lucky enough to get you to do the LARP rules for Hill Folk. And so once again, this is a situation where you are grappling with a pre-existing rule set. So how does that differ from your process of creating a, a new game of your own? Oh, it's it's so different. It was really neat to get to tap other minds as I was working on it, because when you're working alone, you, sometimes you farm things out, but really it all comes down to you. So it was really being part of a team. Uh, and also I had to figure out how to mesh what I saw about what could be into what you had created so nicely with Gumshoe. And it was a neat process. I think we came out with something really, really good. So uh, specifically, is there a particular mechanic that you uh, introduced into the game? That you want to talk about how you grappled with that and, and um, brought it into existence? I think th- one thing I fought for, not, not really that hard, but yeah. uh, was to have the relationships connect the characters to NPCs rather than with other PCs. Because that was a very natural direction to go when mm-hmm. we sort of thought about it for a while. Because we started out with sort of the Smallville model, I think, in our minds, where everyone builds a web of, of, of incestuous character and it sort of goes around and around, and the soap opera generates that way. And I think Emily said, that's not the direction the story should go, because we're about investigating. Let's go outside. Exactly. Let's see what's going on in the world in this town. And, and then I thought that ended up giving us a different way to explore the setting, and um, so we'll see how people like it. And obviously when you bring Emily Kerboss onto a 
design job and she says, I think your design is backwards, you do not say, no, Emily, I'm pretty sure I'm right. You say, oh, well, backwards design. Obviously, I did that as a creative spark to you. <laughs> Plus, there were a lot of games like Smallville uh, and also Monster Hearts that mm-hmm. did the interweaving so well. It was neat to do something different. Yeah, and I think that it also, it wound up, feed, and as usual, when you make the right design decision, it feeds into the source material better, into the sort of the theme of the game, because, of course, your classic sleuth is an outsider, an observer, an ironic uh, participant in the events, but, or in Veronica's case, a borderline sociopath. And so the degree to which, obviously Nancy is better socialized, but, um, <laughs> uh, but the uh, degree to which the story is told in front of the detective, although through their connections to the, to the world, is one of the great com- I mean, it's one of the great insights that Rob Thomas had when he made Veronica Mars a noir teen detective high school story, but I think that it really pays a lot of dividends just on a design way and then also in feeding back what we wanted to sort of get across. And I think that when, you know, you sort of had that idea, you did the, um, what, one of the drifts that you did that I was, one of the great things about having a, an A-list designer is that they will do something that you literally could never have asked them to do because you're not good enough to have thought of that in the first place. And so if you were that good, you wouldn't have needed an A-list, another A-list designer. And so when you did the uh, the scouts, mm-hmm. right, where you're tying advancement in the world into advancement in the, the game badges. and in the rest of that, that was just a great little sort of, like not even a 90 degree, like a 45 degree arc explain on Gumshoe. And I, I'm getting ready to okay. set up Emily to explain it, Robin. <laughs> Jumping in, so un-Canadian of him. He comes to Indianapolis. He eats fat for the first time in decades, and then just becomes. I just thought after the eleventh subclause, people might want to know what this is. Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe if you stop interrupting, they'd find out. So this uh, one of the, the this drift in particular is Strange Hill Scouts, and uh, they have badges basically, so they can opt in to a, a little set of different rules of um, abilities and and so on, just like you would in the normal game. But you get a, a bunch of models. So there's scouts as in Cub Scouts. Yeah, okay. exactly. And they're boys and girls together, and um, so they pick which badge they want to go for next, and then the GM has these directions to tie that into the world. So maybe they're they want to get an astronomy badge. So you figure out how that can be incorporated into play, um, and then it sort of cycles around so that maybe you're maybe you're um, this time you're trying to help uh, a teacher who uh, is going to help you with your badge. I mean, next time you've got this rivalry with another scout club, so it kind of all ties together. The rich scout club from across the, the rich the, fat the lake. scout club, exactly. scout club from across the lake. Yeah, no the um, the degree to which having Emily on the project just lets you lie back and let her do all the hard part is terrific. When you're working on um, a project like Bubble Gumshoe, is there a part where you're saying, well, I'd better put some brakes on it, I'd better, you know, just move ahead half speed and see what's going on? Or are you like, I'm here to be Emily Care boss and blow stuff up and, you know, let's make it happen? What's your approach? Is it sort of a cautious collaborative approach or is it a I'm going to design like a Boss. Yes. For, for, the, for the sake of the, the listener, she is wearing a bandolier of grenades. Yes, at, yes. At the moment. Don't tell them. Um, well, they're I they're vegan grenades, though. 
I left the dynamite at home this time, anyway. Yeah. Um, and I really wanted to honor the vision that you had, because you came to me with this idea, and I'm not sure where it, it, it actually came from originally, but I wanted to make sure that whatever ideas I had really meshed with Gumshoe and Fit, because it's, it's a long-standing game that's part of many and many other, other games that have, that have come out of it. Um, so I wanted to be true to that vision. And uh, yeah, and when you're working in a team, you gotta you gotta be a team player. Exactly. Now, back to the topic of your solo stuff, uh, the romance trilogy, which I guess sort of made your reputation, made your name, made your bones, and then you left us innocent uh, tabletop people behind for LARPs for a while and for closely worded commentary on the history of gaming. But now you're back to the romance trilogy. You've got the new uh, compilation, the Omnibus. What? Are people who pick up that omnibus not necessarily for the first time? What are the people who pick it up because they've already loved shooting the moon or breaking the ice? What is what are they going to find in that omnibus that's going to say, "Oh my God, her power has even grown more magnificent"? <laughs> um, well, the romance trilogy has been over ten years now since I put the first one out. So in that time, I've run these games repeatedly over and over again here at Gen Con, at other cons, for you know everyone under the sun that I could possibly think of. So basically I figured out what rules you never get used. And there weren't that many of them, but those that were there dropped them out and streamlined some others, used some better terminology, updated the language. Our world has changed amazingly in the last 10 years. So things that were progressive and sensitive 10 years ago were like, huh, hmm, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. And also, I realized that I wanted to make sure that if anybody was kind enough to have purchased any of the games twice in buying this, this volume of three, I wanted them to get some extras. So uh, last year, I decided to write some variants of them. And then I did a Patreon where I said, well, hey, if people kick in a little bit, then I'll, I'll do a whole bunch of them. And oh my god, it blew up. I wrote like 30 different rules variants and reskins and new games that are based on them. So the actual book is like twice the size of the three games. It's massive. Yeah. yeah. And were these reskins uh, pitched by the audience, or you had to keep coming up with new concepts? Or Some of them were pitched by folks I talked to. Um, three of them are uh, Supernatural-themed, and that was spurred by talking to folks at the Gauntlet podcast. And they just ask everybody, if your game was actually about um, bare-chested werewolves, what, was it, what would it be called? And then I, I kept thinking about this and thinking about this, and, uh, and so I ended up with games that were like Twilight for the, the romance trilogy, and it just kind of really made sense. I, I hear people like it when you add monsters to things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially sexy, bare-chested werewolves. I think everyone likes that. So you've got, the, you've got the sort of lonely position, really, of being the only top flight designer who's designing games, as I've said before, about love, which is pretty much the some total of artistic concern in most real art forms. <laughs> do you feel happy to be alone and perfect on your crag? Do you say, where the hell is everybody else? Why is Robin and Ken not out here with me? <laughs> uh, and what do you want other people to design? Given that you've designed such great games about love, do you, would you rather no one design mediocre games about love? It's like, no, you hit it right out of the first time. You, we don't need mediocre games about meeting and going on a date. We need good games about this other thing. Although a game about mediocre dates could be quite well. That's yeah. that can be you know any number of you can call it swipe, iterations. You can call it swipe left. Swipe left. <laughs> Someone out there. The is game you're on the game already right playing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I feel like I am 
glad to have been in a field where I could break some new ground mm -hmm. and also grateful that there's a lot of other people that are coming into that. And not everybody is and not everybody should, certainly. Yeah. Um, but especially in the field of LARP, there's a lot of games that focused on love and relationships and heartbreak. It's really good to cry when you're actually sort of pretending to cry. I don't know why. It just works that way. Um, and uh, and also um, in in the romance trilogy, I included two pages of other games that are sort of in the same area. Um, some that have been done for the Golden Cobra um, challenge. Some that have been done for the Iron Game Chef. Um, so I think that this is a it's a genre that people are moving into. And and, uh, and people who want power. to find different games about love can now be shown the way by you again. Yeah, exactly. it's always Emily. Oh man! There, <laughs> Just trying to do my part and yes. spread the word, spread the Terrific. love. Perfect, exactly. So, what's next? What have you got on the drawing board that you can talk about? Oh, um, well, I'm really, really looking forward to having uh, romance trilogy come out. I've got another one that I'm debuting this year called the Spy Fi Bundle, which is a, a, a nano game I wrote that I've expanded. So it's about like. James Bondy type spies realizing that uh, ooh they might fall in love with the enemy and maybe it's not all that it's cracked up for so I guess I, th I threw love back in there again. It's as though you're an actual creator of actual creative art. <laughs> and um, and I got them all at the IGDN booth so that's kind of a nice new thing. I'm part of the Indie Game Developers Network that wasn't around ten years ago. No, no, you had to be the Indie Game Developers Network. You guys <laughs> and the rest of your wonderful little 4G elves. That's right. Back in the day. When you look back at, at the at the game world of ten years ago, and, and you sort of just showing up a, a full fledged genius like Artemis from the Skull of Zeus, do you <laughs> or Athena technically? Sorry, Artemis came from an egg. I know. Um, do you um, think that the, the the today's Emily Careboss, who's just now starting out gaming, where do you think she should point herself? Should she just start out in LARP because? You're all hugging and learning in Scandinavia, or should she be doing tabletop mini games like you did, or should she be doing some other thing that we don't even know about? What what should new Emily Care Boss be doing? The the the, the next level of, of great game designer. I'm going to cheat and say all of the above because yeah. I I think what the single best thing for me to learn as a designer has been to fall in love with new form after new form after new form and keep learning from them all. Okay, um, favorite noir movie. Since you also talk intelligently about noir and other, in addition to all of your other top qualities as a person, um, I'll go with a classic and say um, uh, the long goodbye. The long goodbye. What is it about the long goodbye? I love that it's so seventies. Actually, I said a classic, but it's sort of a modern noir. It's a revisionist, yeah, because yeah. it turns everything on its head, and Altman didn't really. It, it undercuts Chandler's vision of the white knight. It's the mm -hmm. the sort of grayish love and. Uh, yeah. It's, it was an era when Elliot Gould was a movie star. It's, uh, yes, it's if you look at the at the borders of noir, it's when Humphrey Bogart can be a movie star, and then when Elliot Gould still is. That's the <laughs> that's the boundary right there. And then everyone's like, no one wants to see that. It's all Channing Tatum for the end of time. Uh, well, thanks so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much for working on uh, Bubble Gumption. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Emily. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, 
you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That's the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to hurtle Ken back into the time stream to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And standing right by the time machine is Patreon backer Drew Clowery, uh, who has a question for Ken to go back into history and investigate. So uh, watch Ken shimmer. Okay, and Ken is unshimmered, so he's here to answer the question. Can Time Incorporated arrange for the identity of Agent 355 from the Culper Ring to be revealed? Well, after she's safely dead, of course, meaning that you're revealing it now. Now, in not 2016, then. Not I would not you're... be doing it at the time. That would, of course, uh, enable the hated British to uh, clamp their tyrannical grip around America, and we can't have that. Right, and we also don't want them to get podcast technology. In no, that would be even worse. If, if, you know, Burgoyne and Clinton talk about stuff is super uninteresting. Actually, it's probably kind of interesting. Burgoyne was a, was a chatty Cathy. But right. Anyway. But not as interesting as what you're about to hear, dear listener. Um, right. And so, uh, let's start by laying the groundwork. Uh, this, of course, the Culper Ring was uh, Washington's Ring of Spies uh, from the Revolutionary War. There is a TV show about them, which not even Ken is watching. Yes. It's, it's like, wow, you've, you've managed to make an American Revolutionary spy show boring. Congratulations, AMC. Well done. Uh, so... Uh, for all of us not watching that show, what was the Culper Ring? Uh, the Culper Ring was basically a pretty classic intelligence network. The interesting thing being, it was one of the first intelligence networks we actually know about. It probably wasn't the first one. One assumes Richelieu ran similar things in France, and uh, I strongly suspect Cromwell ran a lot of them uh, in the English Civil War. But uh, it's the first one that we know about, and it's certainly the first one in American history. It was a uh, network that existed to get British military secrets out of British military headquarters in New York City and to George Washington in usually New Jersey. And the Culper Ring was named for the pseudonyms of the uh, of the of the spies involved, the agents involved, who signed their names Samuel Culper Sr. and Samuel Culper Jr., disguising their correspondence as the simple correspondence of a man and his family. If the simple correspondence of a man and his family included arcane code numbers just dropped in at random. <laughs> um, it, this was, as I say, the uh, early days of intelligence work, and um, vowel substitution was still a, a crazy technology that no one quite understood. So Samuel Culper Jr. turned out in the 1920s to have the same handwriting as a patriot named Robert Townsend. And they said, what was Robert Townsend, a 
part of George Washington's spy ring. And that is part of what makes the Culper ring so cool. George Washington was so frosty that we didn't know who his spies were until 1929. That's how good he was. Think about that next time you read um, uh, something about the KGB or the CIA, those amateurs, those fly-by-nights. George Washington spies were so boss, we didn't know who they were until a century and a half later. And indeed, we still don't know the identity of uh, Agent 355. And in fact, we don't even know there was an actual agent, Agent 355. That's how little we know about her. Uh, so was it the case, as far as we know then, that Washington, instead of picking a bunch of flakes and weirdos to be his spies, um, picked solid, uh, reliable people who did their job and then shut up about it? That's pretty much what he picked. Um, he, he was the, the Culpers or the, the Townsends were uh, landowners in Long Island, uh, small farmers, and uh, Long Island was occupied by the hated British. And so uh, Townsend didn't like that and began going into town ostensibly to sell produce or buy things and then would pick up rumors and come back uh, into his farm and then pass the message along to a whaleboatman named Caleb Brewster, who passed them along to Je uh, Major Talmadge, uh, later General Talmadge, who was uh, George Washington's uh, head of intelligence. And Washington sort of put the whole job of dealing with the fractious spies on Talmadge, and because Talmadge was a sober, sensible person who knew that the stable ring was the way to get information, not sending dashing cavalry scouts behind the lines, he recruited sober landowners and people who knew sober landowners and eventually included people like uh, James Rivington who published a loyalist newspaper in New York. And uh, once you've got the newspaper guy as your, as your spy, you're getting tons of information and it almost became a problem in some cases of sifting through all the data that Talmadge passed up to Washington rather than simply taking everything that they said at face value. Washington, we suspect, and by we, I mean people who've studied Washington's intelligence operations, probably had other rings that we don't know about because he would compare and contrast the various reports he would get from all of his different sources and build up the strategic picture in his own head of what Clinton or uh, the British were up to. And that implies that he had other assets elsewhere in New York that we don't even know who they are. So before your jaunt back in time, uh, what did we know about Agent 355? We know it was a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, what what did Agent 355 accomplish? Well, we don't know anything for sure because Agent 355 shows up in one single letter from Abraham Woodhull, who is Samuel Culper Sr., to George Washington. And Samuel Culper's letter says, basically it says, we're having trouble getting into New York, but we can use a 355 who has ever been serviceable to help us out. Now, 355 is just the code for lady. That's all we know. So it might have just been that she was a, a single-use cutout that would enable um, Woodhull or Townsend or one of the other people to go into New York without being searched. Uh, that once they get suspicious of the guy coming in to sell lettuce, they start searching all the lettuce wagons. They have to figure out another way. What the British did not do as much was search married couples who were obviously just going into New York to spend money. Uh, because they needed the, the fat cash. So if you had a woman who could pose as the wife of Abraham Woodhull or Robert Townsend, she could walk into New York and prevent them from being searched. So 
it may have just been one time they ask a, a patriot lady, hey, pretend to be uh, Robert Townsend's wife, walk into New York with him. We have to get this information. Walk back out. Not a problem. And she was a one-off. That's right. one possibility. The other possibility is that she was a formal part of the Culper ring and was a, uh, as the uh, letter um, uh, implies, is someone who has played a regular part in transmitting the information one direction or another. And that is where you start getting into all manner of who could it possibly be that was Agent 355? Yes, and that's certainly the more evocative of the two possible answers. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so basically, Agent 355 just means Agent Lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have, uh, I see we have a list here of seven possible Agent Ladies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you uh, run through them? The most likely, uh, and the one that real historians, as opposed to people on the internet with bad sourcing or... Uh, blow-dried Fox News correspondence with books to plug will tell you is a woman named Anna Smith Strong. And Anna Smith Strong lived on Long Island in Setauket, which is where we know the uh, Townsends and the rest of them were from. Uh, we know that uh, the British had a informant saying that there was a certain woman who associated with a guy named Brewster, who was sort of a courier and general roustabout for the ring, uh, that she was involved in somehow getting information to Washington. They never figured out which lady because they could never catch Brewster, uh, who cleverly disguised his activities as those of a common brigand. And so he couldn't <laughs> tell who he was. He could have been anyone. Um, I mean, we know now uh, that he was Caleb Brewster, the whaleboat guy, but they didn't know at the time. So so we know that there's a woman on Setauket. We know that Anna Strong lived on Setauket. We know that she stayed in Setauket when the rest of when her husband went to Connecticut. He was in the New York militia and was a wanted man. Uh, there was a price on his head. Uh, but she stayed to work the farm, which in theory, if she didn't have something to do on the farm, she might have just gone to Connecticut like a lot of other people did. And so... It is uh, so very likely that in the great book, Washington Spies by Alexander Rose, he just says, Agent 55 was Anna Strong. Stop talking nonsense. This does not endear him to uh, people with books to plug. So there are other possibilities. Uh, one that I like almost as well is Sally Townsend, who is the younger sister of Robert Townsend, Samuel Culper Jr., and she's lived, she lived in his house in o- Oyster Bay, which had been co-opted by, uh, the fetid and jowly, but unfortunately effective, Colonel John Graves Simcoe, who was one of those sort of um natural soldier types that gets thrown up by Eaton and uh, Sandhurst or Eaton and Oxford or whatever it was. And he sort of got dumped into the colonies at age 22, bought himself a captaincy, and lo and behold, unlike virtually everyone else in the British Army who bought himself a captaincy, knew how to run soldiers. And so he turned the old Rogers Rangers unit into a really effective irregular cavalry unit. And unfortunately, though, his devotion to the craft of soldiering did not come with it a devotion to the morality of soldiering because he was an odious person who forced his attentions, if nothing else, on the young ladies who were in the house that his troops had quartered themselves in. And he wrote her a number of fairly god-awful love letters that survived to this day, including possibly the first Valentine ever written in America. Um, uh, and so Sally Townsend, if she's there in the house where Colonel Simcoe is running uh, interference for uh, uh, General Clinton, probably picks up a lot of information and certainly has reason to detest Colonel Simcoe and is connected, obviously, to the Culper Ring. So she is another strong possibility and certainly 
uh, probably cuter than Anna Smith Strong. Although again, Anna Smith Strong is, is actually the person who's out there hanging, washing on the line and sending coded messages to Caleb Brewster one way or the other. So, so, so Ken, are you prepared for a Canadian digression? Am I? Canadian digression. So the uh, day that I was traveling to Gen Con, I missed a holiday here in Toronto, Simcoe Day, because <gasps> John Graves Simcoe is not remembered around these parts uh, for being a creeper or, in fact, for his participation on the British side in the uh, American Revolution, but as his later role as a uh, statesman. He was uh, a very influential lieutenant governor of uh, Ontario, then called Upper Canada, and uh, among uh, his uh, many accomplishments, he has a lot. But he has a town named after him, a lake. Uh, he is also known for shepherding. Don't sunbathe by Lake Simcoe, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was also part of the uh, shep- uh, shepherded the uh, Upper Canada Legislature when it was the first part of the British Empire to outlaw slavery. Oh, there you go. So there you go. Little little redemptive note about uh, John Graves Simcoe. End of Canadian digression. End of Canadian digression. I should point out that John Graves Simcoe had no problem keeping the slaves uh, in New York that were already uh, owned by loyalists. He, his uh, abolitionist uh, tendencies did not extend so early in time or so far south. Other possibilities are Mary Underhill, who is a sister of one of the uh, tangential members of the Culper Ring, uh, Betty Floyd, who is a cousin of Robert Townsend, uh, Sarah Horton Townsend, who is the wife of Culper Jr.'s cousin, and now we're really beginning to stretch, and a lady named Elizabeth Bergen, who is awesome in her own right. Uh, she would sneak out to the prison hulks, possibly disguised as a comfort woman to service the sailors, but possibly just uh, under a, a cloak or, or wearing some sort of form-fitting unitard, and uh, would open up uh, the, the hatches and smuggle prisoners off of them. And she smuggled eventually 300 men off the prison ships that the British maintained in New York Harbor, which is probably harder than it sounds, although it's easier than the British Navy apparently thought it was, because she was, you know, one woman smuggling 300 guys off of a allegedly well-guarded ship. So Elizabeth Bergen, because she is so great, I think people say, surely she must also have been so great as to be Agent 355, and, and therefore we can sort of unify the greatness. But I think Patriot America produced many great ladies among them, both Elizabeth Bergen and Agent 355. Now, the final... Uh, name on the list that you will see, and this is even crazier than the regular sort of guess, is Peggy Shippen, who was Benedict Arnold's second wife. And Benedict Arnold's second wife is usually credited by historians of Benedict Arnold as being one of the driving forces that caused him to betray America to the hated British and become the blackest traitor in all human infamy. So the odds of her also having been George Washington's secret agent, I suspect, are smaller than people think. And they probably think they're zero, so that's how small they are. But you will, on the internet, see crazy unsourced arguments, including on the CIA's webpage, so take that into account next time you read a sober assessment of Syria, somebody. That We're just continuing disinformation to throw you <laughs> off what Ichabod Crane is doing next season. Exactly. That, that Agent 355 uh, warned George Washington of Benedict Arnold's treason, which, if she did so, she did so so ineffectively that Benedict Arnold's treason was committed literally while he was sitting across the breakfast table from George Washington. He was 
an ace, uh, just a, a hair short of capturing George Washington while turning over West Point to the hated British. And instead, because Washington showed up early for breakfast instead of on schedule at lunch, uh, with the letter uh, explaining that um, uh, they'd caught John Andre and what should they do with him in his hand, Arnold looks at the letter, recognizes the handwriting of John Andre on it, and realizes the game is up and flees out the window, basically, right after breakfast. So, given that sort of hair's breadth escape of democracy, America, and George Washington, I have to say that Agent 355 was not really on the ball, if that's the case. Unless that was all a cover story, and Arnold's treason was rumbled through some subterranean machination, and the um, uh, the, the, the climactic breakfast... Uh, is a cover story put about by George Washington to explain what happened and possibly to uh, protect the identity of Peggy Shippen, his uh, secret Agent 355 in the very heart of the British command structure. Also against this, Peggy Shippen was in Philadelphia when uh, Agent 355 is off beginning her adventures with the Culper Ring, so the odds of her being Agent 355 are pretty much zero, even if she was also a Patriot source, which she wasn't. Um, she was just a very cute lady who very much loved the hated British and wanted her husband likewise to do so. So uh, you don't need to uh, go back in time to strike her off the list. Yes. But you have gone back in time. You've been speaking the whole uh, segment here as if you don't know the answer. As and, if. Uh, and now, uh, because you know when to reveal information as a writer. So now that we're at the end of the segment, who is Agent 355? Oh, time traveling Ken. Agent 355 is Sally Townsend. Um, and I reveal this knowing that by doing so, I have possibly exposed her not merely to the odious attentions of Lake Cognomen bearing Colonel Simcoe, but also to uh, threats from other time uh, agents who wish to undo her efforts. Uh, fortunately, A, she can handle them, and B, uh, perhaps like George Washington, I too am playing a deeper game, Drew Clowry. I uh, believe the next move is yours. Uh, the reason I say Sally Townsend instead of Anna Strong is because if her job is to accompany uh, Robert Townsend into New York, it is so much more likely that the person that they're going to tab for this is his sister, as opposed to a woman who is clearly 10 years his senior and 10 farm work years, not 10 city years, not 10 Angelina Jolie years, but 10 honest to God farm labor years older and would not pass uh, immediate inspection as a part of a loving couple on the way into town. But uh, Robert Townsend would easily have any number of reasons to leave the house with his sister and then to lie about who he is on his way into town. And um, uh, his sister, being clearly young and attractive, would have fit the role that they were attempting to have her play. So I would say that given the only fact we have about Agent 355, which is that her job was to get Robert Townsend into New York, um, I think Sally Townsend is by far the most likely one. Well, uh, having revealed this epical time fact, I think we can uh, conclude this podcast. And uh, did you bring it back any like crumpets or any? Uh... I brought back a goodish quantity of tawny port. Ooh, even better than crumpets. Yes. Well, we're going to drink some uh, port and uh, wave goodbye to you, uh, gentle listeners. And we'll be back uh, at this time next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. 
Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Ask Fagelm, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such luminaries as... Todd McGowan, Tony Camp, Trung Bui, Alexander Zimmerman, and Andrew Jones. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.